0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Many men prioritize the pursuit of status, power, and autonomy, which can have its advantages in moving them towards financial security and up society's ladder. But as my guest lays out in his book, Lonely at the Top, The High Cost of Men's Success, a focus on work over relationships can also come with significant, even tragic costs. His name is Thomas Joyner. And he's a clinical psychologist, professor of psychology, and an investigator with the Military Suicide Research Consortium. Thomas and I begin our conversation with his work around suicide, why men are more likely to die by Suicide at a rate four times higher than women And how loneliness is a primary factor In what drives men to take their own lives From there we talk about the problem of male loneliness In general and how it can begin in a man's 30s And get worse as he advances through middle age We unpack the difference between subjective And objective loneliness and how you can feel Alone in a crowd as well as be something Thomas calls alone but oblivious We discuss how everyone is quote unquote spoiled By relationships in their youth and why men Struggle more than women to learn to take the initiative In this regard later in life We enter discussion with why therapy isn't the right solution for many men who struggle with depression and loneliness and how equally effective solutions can be found in simply making more of an effort to balance a focus on work and family with socializing and reaching out to others and particularly, Thomas argues, in reconnecting with your friends from high school and college. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is lonely. Thomas Joyner, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be with you. So you are a psychologist who is an expert on, on suicide, a leading expert on suicide. I'm curious, what led you down the path of exploring you know, why people want to uh, die by suicide and then also helping people who, are, who have suicidal thoughts?
1: I guess I'd point to two main drivers of that. You know, One is an intellectual driver. I think it's a fascinating question, how it is that a creature wired for self-interest and self-preservation, most of whom go to great lengths to enhance themselves and and take care of themselves, how can a creature like that come to the point of self-destruction? I think that's a very profound question, not just about suicidal behavior, but about human nature. So intellectually, I think it's profound and, and fascinating in and a window on human nature. As I was starting to delve into it, a personal tragedy occurred, namely the death of my father by suicide. And so quickly, of course, needless to say, it became very personal, very urgent. And it's largely through, well, both windows, I think, that I've turned in part of my work is helping people out of suicidal crises. I know from my dad's experience, the misery. And the agony, certainly for the person going through the crisis, but also for the family members and the family members, you know, if they're bereaved like we were, the pain is intense. And so any any help, any alleviation of that kind of misery and suffering, I think is to the greater human good.
0: We're going to talk about a book that you wrote called Lonely at the Top, which is sort of an out, sort of a, it's a it's it's related to your work in suicide it's about male loneliness but before we do can we talk about you you have this theory i think it's called the interpersonal theory of suicide cuz i think it'll kind of explain like why you think loneliness plays a key role in suicide can you walk us through your theory of suicide and and so sort of lay a groundwork for what we'll be talking about here today
1: it starts with one distinction that that ends up being kind of an organizing distinction between desire for suicide, you know, just having ideas about suicide, thoughts about suicide, that kind of thing. That's a fairly common experience in the general population. But what's not common at all is taking those thoughts and desires and putting them into action. It's certainly very rare for people to put those kind of thoughts into lethal action. Thinking about suicide, fairly common, actually dying by suicide, pretty rare, And that asymmetry always impressed me. And it just occurred to me over the years that there must be a variable that explains why it is that that most people don't progress to action, certainly not lethal action, but some people do. And and so that distinction between desire for suicide and then the ability or the capability to enact it, viewing those as separate processes, I think was, was very fruitful. Within those two domains of desire and capability, we've gotten a little more specific. Desire, we think, is made up of two main variables or, or states of mind. One having to do with the idea that you're hopelessly cut off and hopelessly alienated from others. And a second one having to do with the thought that you're a burden on society, loved ones, family you might even view yourself as a burden on yourself in, in the sense that, that carrying on is just too much. And so when those two states of alienation, loneliness, and burdensomeness come together, we, we think that's what produces desire. And then capability is made up of things like fearlessness, fearlessness specifically of physical matters, things like injury, pain, death itself. Fearlessness of those things, we think, is a major driver of capability, along with things like pain tolerance and familiarity and knowledge having to do with suicidal means. You know, for instance, if you don't know anything about firearms, you know, if you don't know the first thing about how to load one or shoot one, well, then it's pretty unlikely that you die by that method. So, practical capability is, is that. When all those things come together in the same individual That's when we predict that these disastrous tragedies happen.
0: So along that desire component, sounds like a a big part of the desire is you feel it's a social alienation. It's a social problem, a part of it, a big part
1: of it. Indeed. I mean, we've we've named the theory the interpersonal theory because so much of it is social or, or interpersonal. So much of human nature is social and, and interpersonal so, so so most definitely.
0: Well so this leads us to the lonely at the top and one of the things you highlight in the book is that while men are seen as living at the top of the social totem pole in terms of enjoying money status, they also are at the top of the totem pole when it comes to you know the share of deaths by suicide can you highlight like what are the recent statistics about that show like the gender breakdown on suicide?
1: Well, de- death by suicide is very male-linked. That's really clear. The United States is a pretty representative example of the the world in general. In the U.S., for every one woman who dies by suicide, as many as four men do. That's very skewed towards, towards male-linked mortality or, or lethality. That's just for starters. Men do tend to be less social than women. They tend to be less are more lonely. And that that does seem to be on, you know, sort of in the cards from early on in the sense that even six-month-old baby boys and baby girls tend to relate to social things differently already at that stage. So, these have early roots. But then over the course of development, certainly into middle adulthood and older adulthood, I think... On average, these are just average trends. Of course, there are exceptions to the rules, but these are general trends or rules. On average, men become a lot lonelier than women do. Women are better at sustaining, cultivating uh, relationships over the course of the of the lifespan, and and men are not. And and when you're 20 or or 30, that that's not maybe such a big deal, you know, maybe relationships are sort of provided to you by college or school or work or what have you. But in the 30s and 40s and 50s and beyond, cultivation and and nurturance of these relationships is key. And and men, by and large, aren't, aren't great at that. And it's very much to their detriment.
0: Well, that's probably, you know, that idea that as you get older, you know, I mean, people have seen those articles that there's been this uptick in the number of men in America who are dying by suicide, and you're like, "Well, you know, they're probably in their 20s or 30s," but no, it's like they're they're in their 50s or
1: 60s. Right. It's a very suicide is very linear with regard to age. I mean, generally speaking, it's it's linear in that the older you get, the more at risk you get. It certainly occurs in in young people, teenagers, people in their 20s, and and that's noteworthy. And it's tragic, and, and 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 also, it's on the increase in those age groups, but nevertheless, the trend still holds that the older you are, the more vulnerable you are. Obviously, that's true of a lot of things having to do with health. It's definitely true with, with regard to suicide, too.
0: Well, so let's, this idea, you know, your idea, the interpersonal theory of suicide, the desire to want to die by suicide is a sense of alienation, social alienation, or loneliness. And so this kind of segues nicely to what we're going to talk about today about male loneliness. What? How do you define like in in your work? How do you? What is loneliness? Like how would you define it?
1: I mean, I think there are, there are at least two facets that can be useful to to draw out, although they're very related to one another, and it has to do with the difference between an interior experience, you know, what somebody feels like inside, versus you know what you might call an exterior experience or what things are. You know what things are like objectively. In other words, there could be a person, for instance, who objectively, in terms of their exterior experience, they have a lot of connections. They have family members around, they have friends, etc. But on the inside, on the interior, they feel desperately alienated and lonely. Nonetheless, the idea, I guess, I'd put it is that having people around is no guarantee to prevent loneliness. It helps. Certainly, but it's no guarantee. So I think that distinction between subjective and objective experiences of how peopled one's experiences are, I think that's a, a useful distinction. And it solves some mysteries because you, you can talk to families of bereaved people who, who are bereaved by suicide, and they'll, they'll often say things like, but we were there for him on that very day. How could he have felt lonely? And, and, and the answer, I'm afraid, is that there's a difference between what's going on on the exterior and what's going on in the interior. On the interior, I think people in that situation feel desperately lonely, no matter how many people are around.
0: Well, I think in the book, you call that whenever you're surrounded by people, family, friends, but you still feel lonely. You call that alone in a crowd. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it's a phenomenon that, that most people are immediately recognize. It's happened to most, if not all of us, that you just, you, you know, there can be people around, there can be people who really seem together in something, you know, it, maybe it's their belief in a, in a religion or, or in a, a political idea, and you don't feel it, and it can be very lonely, uh, even though you're objectively obviously not lonely in, in a literal sense, because there's a crowd around you, you can still be quite quite lonely despite that
0: why do you think that happens why do you think you can be surrounded by people yet still subjectively feel lonely like when you talk to people what do you think's going on there
1: it's a deep question actually i mean i don't know the answer to that if anyone really does to the, the depths of the question i mean the main thing that occurs to me is that that interior world it's certainly influenced by the exterior world, but but it's got many other internal influences. You know, when things go awry internally, like if somebody's in the midst of a major depressive episode, that illness can be so powerful that it, it just unpeoples the interior world, even if the exterior world is full of love and care. It, it's a very puzzling paradox, but the illnesses like major depressive disorder can be so so powerful that they they unpeople the interior world even of a very peopled person's experience. So
0: that's one type of loneliness where you objectively, you're not lonely because there's people around you, but you feel lonely subjectively, the interior. But you also talk, there's another type of loneliness and you call this alone but oblivious. So these are, and this happens oftentimes with men, men who... They don't have a lot of people around them, no friends, hardly any other social contacts outside maybe their wife and their kids, and they don't feel... So objectively, they, they look lonely, right? but they don't feel lonely.
1: That's right. And, and um, that can be dangerous because it can surprise usually men, but anyone, a person, but usually men. It can surprise them because their obliviousness can lift in their late 50s, 60s, or 70s. And, but by then, a, a lot of the architecture or the machinery that's needed to initiate and cultivate and sustain relationships, a lot of that is just atrophied. And so people are left in a, a, a pretty a pretty tragic dilemma of now recognizing how alone one feels and being unable or, or feeling unable to, to do much about it. That can especially be the case of if someone has invested most of their adulthood, not in relationships, but into into work. I would be the last to, to counsel against investment in work. I think it's crucial and key, but it can be overdone. And, and if it's overdone to the exclusion of relationships, once that work starts to end or, or, or recede, People can be left in a very painful dilemma, stuck in a very painful dilemma. A lot of men are stuck that way, and then what's left is their is their spouse and 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 then if something happens to her, or if there's a separation, divorce, that that's a very precarious situation, and it pertains to both sexes, but but a little bit more so than men overall.
0: So it sounds like this alone, but oblivious. So you're subjectively you don't feel lonely but objectively you are, you might not have any problems, but like whenever they become a problem, they become a problem really fast. Like you kind of delay the problem and then it just hits you really hard. Once you real, like you suddenly realize, oh boy, I am really lonely and this is a problem.
1: Yeah, it's a brutal. it's it's a brittle state because the reality is that the person's relationships are atrophying around them as is the ability to initiate those relationships in the first place. And then it's sustainable, You know, for a while, even decades, via connection to work or to a main relationship like that with a spouse. But I guess the point that I was trying to drive at that in that book, at least one of them, is that to have one connection, or even two, to, to say work and to a spouse. You know, it's like being in space, and if you've just got one connection and a brittle one at that to the spaceship, if you're on a space walk. That's precarious. You need backup. You need redundancy, and that's that's the thing. One thing that women are, are much better at, on average, than men. They have that redundancy. They work on building up that redundancy in their connections to life via relationships with family and friends, and work too, and their spouse too. That that multiple connection just builds in safeguards and, and redundancies that that can you know, be life-saving when one of the initial connection phrase. Fr- well, short of the,
0: you know, contributing to the desire to want to die by suicide, this isolation, this alienation, social, uh, this feeling of loneliness, what other bad effects does loneliness have on men?
1: It has uh, some of the most profound health effects of any, of anything on men and women too. You know, it's even, there are studies, you know, Documenting that the effects of loneliness on physical health and or and on mortality, those effects for loneliness are even stronger than what they are for things like smoking or obesity or other plainly medical or or biologically relevant threats. The, The idea that I take away from that is that loneliness is a biological threat too, and at least as powerful as something like smoking in terms of rendering people at risk for for physical health problems and psychological problems too, for sure. So, I mean, I think one of the arguments that I made in that book and that many others have made too, is that the toxic effects, that the physical, biological toxic effects of loneliness are are underestimated. They're at least as strong as something like smoking daily, regular, you know, pack a day smoking.
0: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So I think we've all read articles you know, in the past, I would say, decade where you'd see things that like increasing loneliness in America. Do you know when they do these studies on loneliness, are they talking about that subjective feeling of loneliness or are they talking about that objective
1: loneliness? I think they're probably talking about both. And I, I think the point does apply pretty well to both. And that, that stands to reason, I think, because these two things are correlated with one another. I mean, one of my points is that they're not perfectly correlated with one another. And so people can feel alone in a crowd or alone but oblivious. But, but mostly people who are lonely know it and feel it and are by themselves. That's mostly what happens. And so I think those studies are probably with regard to, to both. Many of the measures in the loneliness area, especially the brief ones that can be easily administered to hundreds of thousands of people they tend to focus a little more on, on subjective loneliness, you know, how felt and experienced uh, aloneness than they do on objective but I, I think they're probably targeting both. and what's your take what what do you think's
0: the causing the increase of loneliness in america and other western countries?
1: yeah, it's a it's a it's a complicated question. i mean, I, i'm not, i'm not really one to castigate something like social media use. I have colleagues who do and others who who, who don't. That's, a, that's actually a, a subject, an interesting subject of controversy, but I just see it as a two-edged kind of thing, social media that is, where I think it can be alienating and I, I think it can pull people into screens and away from actual relationships, including relationships, by the way, with the world around, like nature and exercise and sunlight and things like that. But on the other hand, I think it can be good. I think it can bring people together, social media. I think it really does connect people socially. So I just think it's a, a little bit of a of a draw in terms of its negative and, and positive consequences. That may be a small contributor to increases in loneliness. You can make kind of the same argument about, about technology in general, is that it's It's got a lot to it that's positive and even connecting, but it can be alienating. I think that's probably part of it. In the United States, the opiate epidemic is is relevant. I think that lifestyle alienates people. I think we have a culture in the U.S. of rugged individualism. And I think there's a whole lot to admire about that. And I think there's a dark side. And that dark side is always there and it kind of ebbs and flows depending on the what's going on with the rest of the culture. So those are some of my thoughts about it. You know, economic factors are certainly relevant, but those have come those have gone up and down. I don't see those as, as clear driver. A fragmentation processes of communities, neighborhoods, families. That's certainly a relevant factor too.
0: So yeah, complex. A lot of factors going on here. But in the book, you highlight a few you know, theories or ideas of what you think is contributing to male loneliness, particularly that, that loneliness that happens to men when they get to their 50s or 60s, where we see that increase in death by suicide because they get so lonely. And the first idea you have is that male loneliness is caused by men being spoiled when it comes to relationships. Uh, what do you mean by that?
1: I think the way that society is structured, and and rightly so, actually, is that young people in general tend to be spoiled about relationships in the sense that you can be passive as a as a young child, an infant certainly, but as a very young child, and then you know, into adolescence, you can be a pretty passive and yet relationships for or, or sorry, opportunities for relationships happen anyway they're just kind of provided for you via family reaching out and being very active via school and related you know groups of people just being there for, for kids obviously there are some kids who who are exceptions but generally speaking that's true and and then in the adolescence whether it's a workforce you know or a or or something like a university setting or college setting or community college setting same processes. And then that that sort of serving up of relationships starts to go away on average into the 20s and 30s. And it's at that point that an active stance towards really reaching out for new relationships and reaching back to sustain old relationships, that becomes crucial. And, and I just think men more than women are spoiled out of doing that. And they can cruise on it and coast on it for a while, but often it catches up with them in time. And, and in time in, ends up often being in the 60s and 70s. All right, so
0: so it's men are spoiled. So everyone's spoiled. Like men and women are equally spoiled. Because so I think you make this point, if you look at kids, young kids, like you know, they're seven or eight or nine, boys and girls, they have the same number of friends, basically. Both of them are great because they, they're in school, they've got their friends at school, they've got sports. But if you ask those same boys and girls when they're 60 or 70, how many friends you have, there's a disparity. The women are going to have more friends, but the the men aren't going to have as many friends because they have, they stopped taking, well, they, they just, they, they took relationships for granted. Like they just thought they just happened, but they reached a certain point in their, in their life where you had to actually be active about your friendships.
1: Exactly. And making new ones. I mean, I, I think being active about relationships can take at least two forms and one is being sort of open and, and even eager for new relationships, new friendships. And, and that requires effort. And, and for instance, on a university campus, the way that the incentive structure is these days in most U.S. universities at any, at any rate, it, one, is, one is encouraged to drill down into sub-sub specialties. And, and so you, you're not incentivized to relate to people. On other quarters of the campus you know I'm in a department of psychology we're not incentivized to show up to functions of the departments of English or religion or biology or physics I've done that I've taken active steps to do that and it's been very rewarding because intellectually you're you occasionally pick up a new idea but socially you're just you're introduced to a whole new group of people people who are really a delight whom you'd never have met if you just stayed on autopilot and did the passive thing. So so that's one aspect of of being open to friendships is openness to new relationships. But arguably more important is the reaching back to rekindle or to 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 maintain relationships that were really important back in the day. I think there's a special power to the friendships that are forged. In the age between the ages of say 10 and 20. And a lot of people can think of people who were really important to them back then. I mean, crucially important to them back then, whom they haven't reached out to in decades, years at least, sometimes decades. And it's not that hard to just pick up a phone, especially these days with the internet, and reconnect with those people. And, and the other thing I can say from personal experience is when you do that, I guess some, some people fear that it'll be awkward. It won't be the same like it was. It, it, it'll be just be you know a waste of time. I, my experience has been completely contrary, where sometimes over the course of 30 years, with no contact over 30 years, immediately one just clicks back into that same rhythm, that same familiarity, that same comfort. I think there's a special power to friendships like that. So that, that's the other form of relationship maintenance, I guess, would be the word that, that I think's arguably even more important than being open to new relationships.
0: I actually had that experience of reconnecting with an old friend a few weeks ago. Out of the blue, my old college roommate texted me. and He's like, is, is this Brett's phone number still? And I said, oh, hey, it's, it's great to hear from you. And he's like, let's talk. We got on the phone and we talked for... You know, about 45 minutes and it was I felt great at I felt great for like a few days after that just having that conversation and reconnecting with him. And I hadn't talked to him in like 15, 20 years. I mean it's been a long time.
1: It's remarkable. I've had it many, many times myself, similar experiences. Also, you know, I've just made a real point this is not for everybody, of course, but I've just made a real point of showing up to high school and college reunions. And and that's where you really see it is you know, there are people there who you haven't seen in 20 years, 25 years, 20, and 30 years. I've just been amazed at how it doesn't matter. It just, you just pick up that same easy rhythm and rapport, just like when you were 15. It's just, it's very pleasant and, and, and fun. And it, it does make, it does improve your mood. And then if you do that serially, and maintain that across the different relationships. I think it maintains mood. You said it, it maintained your mood for that one example for days, but I think if you do this serially, you start to multiply that and it becomes, you know, it, it, it maintains mood for weeks and months and years. So I, I heartily recommend it. I can't think of one example where I've reached out and it backfired. I mean, I guess these days things are fraught with politics and such, but. I would counsel putting all that aside and just focusing on the friendship and the, and the, the comfort and the easy rhythm and, and familiarity of, of the friendship back in the day and trusting that at least some of that will revive if you just take the effort to reach out.
0: Well, one of the reasons you hypothesize that women tend to be better than men at maintaining relationships in adulthood is that men, if you're speaking in generalities, tend to take a more instrumental approach to the relationships.
1: I mean, I think that's fair, and and it's also fair to continually emphasize that they you know, that that generalizations are, you know, always subject to to criticism. I mean, that that that's fair, but the data also what's also fair is to face the objective data, and, and they're very clear that yeah, these are these are true trends where uh, men tend to be more like that than than women to their. Benefit sometimes i mean being instrumental pays off can pay off uh and i actually encourage it i think it's a good thing i just don't think it's a good thing in extreme excess to the to the degree that you neglect other things like the relational aspect of humans you know that that's that's dangerous and that that's going to catch up with 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 you sooner or later in my view
0: yeah, that instrumental approach to life, you know, that's what allows men to, you know, get a good job, you know, buy a home, you know, establish themselves, right? You have to like you're just thinking about what you got to do to to get those things. And those are all good things, but I think the case you made is that you have to temper that. You can't just make your whole pursuit in life money and status and work because if you do, you're going to end up you know, alone in the you know have that alone in the crowd or the alone but oblivious thing going on.
1: That's right, and and you know, moreover, if if you do overdo it with the instrumental kind of approach, in the best case, you'll be you know financially successful or professionally successful and lonely. But that's the that's the best case, and that's kind of rare. I, I mean, overall, especially if you're talking about very, very high levels of achievement or of wealth. What's a little more common is for it not to work out on the instrumental side, and you're lonely there too. That's a that's a witch's brew. That that's that's disastrous for for health in the last half of life. I, I men are just making that bet more than women, and it's 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 a risky bet. And there's no need for it, especially when our natures are such that it's just natural to relate to one another. It's, it's an unsafe, risky, unnecessary bet, in my view, and and men make it more, more frequently than women. Women make it too, but men, men definitely make it more frequently.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that idea of instrumentality. Coming at the expense of relations, you know, we're coming up on Christmas, made me think of Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge. I think mean, he's like the epitome of that, right? Like he just focused on money, money, money. And then, you know, he sees the his future self and like no one comes to his funeral and people are just stealing the, the bed curtains from his bed. Right. <laughs> and, and uh he had no friends at the end. And he, he of course, he changes himself at the end and realizes, oh, relationships are important too.
1: Yeah, that's a good. That's a good image or good sort of symbol of of these processes. Because yeah, that's that's right. The other thing that that I I might add here is that it can seem a little bit Pollyannish or or cliched or naive, maybe, to say don't worry about work or you know achievement or money. Don't worry about that. Relationships or everything. That's not really what I'm saying, though. What I'm saying is go ahead and work ten hours a day. And, and keep that up. But as you do that, you can weave in relationships. I mean, you can work a 10-hour day and then go home and text your best friend from college or high school. That takes like one minute, if that. So, you know, I'm just talking about little doses uh, of this. At a minimum, it's not hard to do. It's not naive or cliched or Pollyannish. It's balanced. And that that's kind of what I'm going for is is I think things get out of balance for some people who end up in crisis or even in the disastrous situation of suicide death, very out of balance. And to get that balance back is not all that hard. It's not doesn't have to be 50-50. It just can't be 100-0.
0: Well, another type of loneliness or cause of loneliness that can happen to some men is men who they make their focus you know, money and status, climb the corporate ladder, and they find themselves at the top of the ladder of the the pile the pyramid and you think oh man you look at these people they man that guy's got it all it's got people surrounding him they want to like people men want to be him women want to be with him but you ask like how are you feeling he's like man i feel terrible i'm completely lonely like what what what's going on i mean have you counseled people like you know ceos or anything like that where they've they're at the pinnacle of success but they just feel completely miserable because they're incredibly lonely
1: most definitely and you know I think one of the things that feeds into that is is that when you get to those levels of achievement, you know in terms of you know whatever it may be creative endeavors or professional achievement or wealth or whatever, you start to elevate yourself out of social circles and there there are people who just don't think they can relate to you because of you know you've just elevated beyond that that's a danger i think of a very high achievement but that there's a remedy for that you know one is is signaling to people that you know despite the fact of the achievement or the fact of the wealth it's just not true it's just not true of, of who you are i think you can signal that in your demeanor and comportment but i also think that that's yet another reason to reach back to the friends in college cuz they knew you back then when you weren't whatever, a CEO or a great artist or any of that. They knew you when you were just some guy. And, and I, I think that, that there's great value in that, underestimated value. I, I haven't studied it rigorously, but in talking with my own social circles, I, I've been impressed by how, how few of the people that I know remain in contact with their best friend from when they were 15, for example. Pretty common not to be in contact with that person. The idea, I guess, being that you've grown apart or grown out of that, I suppose that can happen, but I've seen it too many times where despite differences, despite growing in different directions, there's still that easy, familiar, knowing, understanding, rapport that just kicks right back in. And its I think it can be vital to to thriving and flourishing.
0: So we've talked some, some reasons why... What causes male loneliness? Men are spoiled, and by spoiled, we I mean they just they take relationships for granted. Right. They don't learn how to actively foster or maintain relationships until it's too late, or they they get distracted with you know good things like work and and money and and status. Like those things are can can be good, but like they just. They focus on that only at the detriment of the relationships. So when men, when, once they, they start experiencing that emotional loneliness, that subjective feeling of loneliness, in your research, how do men typically cope with loneliness? I would mean, imagine you know, women probably reach out to people. What do men tend to do?
1: It depends on, I mean, there's a, a healthy reaction and an unhealthy reaction. And unfortunately, men tend towards the unhealthy reactions of turning to alternative sources of seeming support or seeming connection. Things like alcohol, alcohol and drug abuse, things like sexual contact, absent real relationships or sexual contact that damage existing relationships and any number of other kind of distractions. That's kind of how I view all those things is, as distractions from, from what really is our lifeblood. And that's true relationships with, with people who are part of us, family, friends, friends from back in the day. And so that's an unhealthy move in response to this growing awareness of, of loneliness. A good way to use loneliness is just like you use physical pain. Physical pain is a signal. Hey, something's wrong. Something doesn't matter with my knee or my hip or, or whatever the case might be. And you can take that signal of knee pain or hip pain and try to drink it away, or you can go to the doctor and get it fixed and with loneliness that signal same thing you can try to drink it away or what have you or you can turn to the effort it's not that hard of an effort but it's an effort to build new relationships and sustain or rekindle old ones so i would use it like a pain signal of hey this things are going wrong and i got to write them and and there's a there's a way to write them and it's not that hard and that's the better choice the other choices just have you know too many risks to them, and they, they lead to ruin pretty regularly.
0: So, yeah, I mean, it's not that hard. I think you mentioned this in the book, oftentimes a response to male loneliness, we think about, well, you just need to get these guys into therapy, and they'll start talking about their emotions and opening up, and that will solve it. And you, you're kind of dubious about that solution.
1: Why so? You're right. I am skeptical of that, and it's interesting because I am a therapist, and I am a psychologist, and... And that's kind of the stuff that we do. And I don't have disrespect for it at all. I mean, it actually works really well if the person is ready to take it. And if they're ready for it, it works great, that kind of stuff. Th- that's a problem though, because not everyone is motivated to do it. It doesn't fit everyone. And men, I think, can be a, you know, on average, a, a pretty bad fit for traditional forms of, of psychotherapy. And so I think we need to be creative to engage and, you know, just, just kind of small behavioral fixes along the lines of what we, what we've been discussing, I think, are at least as powerful as traditional as trying to convince men to stick with traditional psychotherapy. Uh, I just, that's not for everybody. And I, unlike most psychologists, I think, think that's completely obvious as to why that's not for everybody. And And I guess, unlike most psychologists, I'm not just willing to throw my hands up and say, well, we'll just focus on the ones who are interested in what we do. I don't think that's good enough because it leaves out a whole segment of the population who who do need help and who we can help with our research and with our work and our clinical techniques. We've just got to be thoughtful about adapting them culturally, so to speak, to the culture, to the mindset of different subgroups, in this case, men. So what are some
0: things, and we've talked about a few, like things that people who are feeling lonely, they can do, like just reach out, connect to an old friend. But what are some other things that men can do to start reducing loneliness and investing in relationships more that don't involve having to go to therapy if that's not something they want to do or feel comfortable with?
1: Right. I mean, the easiest place to start is just, we do this within the clinic that I, I direct here in in Tallahassee Florida we we bargain we, we make simple bargains with patients that they'll just show up to a gathering of some sort a gathering that they had not planned to show up to but they they bargain that they now will that's all they have to start with is all they had to do is show up it could be anything any gathering it can be at a whatever a classroom or a museum or something else on campus or some sort of sporting event or or a community organizing event, religious event, political, it doesn't matter, just as long as there are people there together. The idea being that there is a natural human tendency to reach out and socialize. And if you put a a particular human with other humans in a group, sooner or later that natural tendency is going to spark. However, if you isolate that human from other ones that won't spark. So a simple idea is to at least get exposure to other people, you know, so that the chance that that natural tendency will spark, you know, is, is enhanced. If people will agree just to do those kinds of things on a regular basis, that alone goes a long way. It doesn't immediately cure something like a major depressive disorder or a suicidal crisis, but what it does start to do is turn the tide over the course of time and repetition to where you know a bad major depressive episode for example has become less bad less severe a suicidal crisis has gone from potentially lethal down to you know still quite distressed but now now non-lethal that's a that's a huge distinction so i would start there with just the idea of bas- the basic idea and the simple idea of showing up
0: How do you do that? I mean, we're still in the pandemic here, where now a lot of communities are starting to clamp down with stay-at-home orders and things. How do you do that during a pandemic?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the, the fix there is the same fix that we we most all of us have seen with regard to work and meetings and things like that. It's got to be at a distance or remote or virtual. You know, that in my own view, that's just not the same, quite the same dose as in-person gatherings, but that's where we are for the foreseeable, you know, X number of months. Until then, you, you take what is available and it, it would be, you know, virtual kinds of analogs of the, of the showing up. I, I've shown up myself to colloquia, seminars and the like around the campus on, on FSU, but it's been from my home via, via Zoom and similar kinds of technologies. Uh, you know, there it's it's a peopled experience, but it's not quite the same, but it's better than nothing. And you know, I've also done some distanced sort of socializing, you know, small small groups outside, sitting, you know, six or seven feet apart, that kind of thing. You know, we're we're coping, you know, temporarily, but the same, the same principles apply of showing up and reaching out a little bit. Again, it doesn't have to be that big of an effort, but just just the, the start of showing up and and getting those natural kind of processes of connections sparked. I think that's, it's a, it's a starting point. Let's put it that way at any rate, or, or at least an initial step.
0: Yeah, we got this membership program called The Strenuous Life and members can get together in their geographic areas for meetups. And it's been interesting to see what people do during the pandemic. They've done some virtual stuff, but like an activity, like just doing stuff outside in nature, where you you know it's relatively COVID safe, you can social distance. And you're outside, like so rucking, so you, you know basically hiking with a backpack. That's been a popular activity, or just doing stuff. And I think you even write this in your book: nature can be sort of a part of the process of alleviating or combating loneliness in men.
1: I mean, absolutely. I, I I'm very very drawn to ancestral evolutionary explanations of 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 why our nature is what it is human nature has these features because of our evolutionary ancestral past and one was small group de- deep dependence for survival itself dependence on each other another was our close you know intuitive regular daily relationship with nature you know with plants with trees with animals with all elements of nature with water Swimming in water, fishing in it, boating in it, all, all of these things. And in a modern technological world, those things can can recede. And, and I don't think that's in our natures. Technology, I'm not an anti-technology kind of person. On the contrary, if anything, but again, it's a similar theme of everything in moderation and, and technology in moderation, the neglect of nature needs to be moderated too. It's essential to who we were, and therefore. I think, essential to who we are.
0: Well, Tom, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Is there some place people can go?
1: Probably the main site would be via the Department of Psychology at Florida State University. If you just Google my name and and FSU, I think that'll get you immediately there. The books I've written on topics like loneliness, explaining why people died by suicide, things like that, or are available too at, at all the usual places, Amazon, et cetera.
0: Fantastic. Well, Thomas Joyner, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: My guest today was Thomas Joyner. He's the author of the book Lonely at the Top. It's available on Amazon.com. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash lonely. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing Show with a friend or family member who think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action.